Hello. Okay. And, oh, Hello and welcome to Leviathan News. Today is June 16th and today we have on special guest Y2K intern from Y2K Finance who is going to help us make light of a story which has kind of been brewing. It's like a story but not a non-story and then it's a story. Just rumors and then more rumors. And then a little bit of price movement and then some more rumors and nothing really happening yet. And we've talked about this story over the last few days with some interested people on crypto Twitter turning an eye towards Curve and pointing out that this week the imbalance of the three pool has shifted towards USDT uh, in what they would say is a precipitous increase in the amount of USDT in this pool and saying that potentially Tether could depeg at some point. And this is all in a broader context of uh, questions around Tether. Uh, there was a story that was put out this week from uh, DL News featuring Mark Cahotes, the outspoken short seller uh, who was instrumental in driving Silvergate and First Republic and uh, Signature Bank all down and he says that tether is next and so we've seen tether weather many storms and you know pay a couple of fines uh, and it's still been able to continue to operate so y2k intern thank you for coming to the show we invite you on today and uh glad to see you here yeah great to be here guys thank you for inviting me so what actually is happening with all this questions around dpegs and stable coins and just how they interact with the the market here honestly so so we talked a bit about this before the show um and i, I guess like to, to give the audience a bit of context about like our thoughts around this i don't i don't really see any of this usdt stuff as a dpeg um i see it more of like a liquidity crisis or a liquidity crunch i wouldn't even call it a crisis at this point um circle is more of a liquidity crisis a few months ago um and uh, you know when you look at DeFi in general uh if you look at a lot of systems in isolation things can look really ugly like very quickly like if you look at curve in isolation if usdt didn't trade anywhere except for curve it would obviously have depegged by now um but the, the thing is like that's not the case right and in a no arbitrage environment like that won't be uh the case Unless it depegs in other in other venues, like where there's actually more liquidity, and and in the end of the day, I think USDT liquidity is very massively understated. Uh, if you think about it, every single centralized exchange, which is like whether we like it or not, that's where all of crypto liquidity lives. Like DeFi, it's peanuts compared to that. You take like OKX or Binance or whatever, like it dwarfs any kind of volumes or liquidity that you'll see in, on on chain for now at least. And every major pair trades against USDT. And I think it'll it'll be a much more difficult asset to depeg than some of the others that we've seen, unless there's some very fundamental reason for which one tether isn't worth a US dollar anymore, right? And and I think that's kind of like what what it comes down to in in general in crypto, with uh, like with the way that people view risk in this market. And it's it's really funny because crypto is such a speculative asset class. And the reason for that is because fundamentally the technology itself is speculative. People are still trying to figure out what can we use blockchain for in the first place. Then you have all these things that are built on a blockchain for better or for worse. 
that are kind of compounding this speculation. And what you end up with is a very reflexive market. People don't buy Bitcoin until it crosses 30K. But once it crosses 30K, it hits 60K. People won't short it until it's at the bottom. And, and that's why you end up seeing these really, really big moves that are really drawn out, right? Um, and then now, now that the market's a little bit more sophisticated, people are doing it with volatility. And then that's why we're seeing months of just sideways trading while people are just shorting options. And, and it's also one of those like, less regulated markets where people are shorting options with no hedges and like there's no repercussion for being a market maker that does that um which ends up just kind of forcing prices to, to be at certain levels and anyways I, I guess i'm getting into that because that mentality translates to the way people are viewing risk in crypto and, and you know you, someone will go and tweet hey 70 percent of curves pool is uh, tether right now i'm willing to bet three quarters of crypto twitter doesn't even know what the implications are of that if there are any They'll wait till some influencer says, damn, this could be a DPEG or post some meme about it. And then people will start exiting furiously. And then you see that small like price deviation and all of a sudden, boom, some fund says, okay, you know what? There's a non-zero probability that this thing DPEGs. Let's get out. And then everyone understands like the market kind of prices this in is that if the risk ends up creating enough headlines, some regulator might you know start caring about it. So it's a, it's a really funny market in that sense where one thing will always lead to another, but it's always a snowball effect. Uh, but in either case, like to, to me and to like many people, and I'm sure like most people here, the tether stuff is by by and large like just a non-event, right? Um, why would the integrity of some stable swap have anything to do with the fundamental value of an asset that trades on it? It shouldn't. And like, thankfully it doesn't. And if it did, then, we, you know... <laughs> there'd be some issues. And, and there were, you know, a year ago when there was a very famous blockchain that, that had similar dynamics built into it. So, Yeah. And in that case, you had billions of dollars rushing for the exits and, you know, Tether trying to process as fast as possible and uh, just being held up by probably banking issues and other, other reasons. Right. And so you like look at their redemption fees uh, plus wait times to have all these uh, funds clear. And sure, you know, the on-chain equivalent could depeg. Uh, if you think about like how much the redemption costs are plus the wait times, it, it should depeg to a point where you are able to get your money out faster in DeFi immediately and you pay that cost. Uh, and then markets go back to normal, people can arb the price and it goes back to a one-to-one. -one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I will say that uh, it's interesting to see Paulo and uh, was Paulo, the CTO, uh, talking about transparency at Tether, which I actually thought was a little cute. Uh, so he said, today is a good day at Tether. He said there was an attack, and this attack is a good stress test for us, nothing more. And he said, we'll demonstrate that Tether is strong, liquid, and ready to protect its community. And then this part down here I thought was a little cute. Uh, he said, and today, Tether is also stronger than ever. Oh, sorry. No, I skipped ahead a little bit. He's like, and in this period, more than ever, after so many failures, uncertainty, doubt, and our industry needs to have stability and reassurance. Tether doesn't have anything to hide. Never had, which is a bold-faced lie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't seem exactly like the most transparent uh, entity in, in the space. Exactly. We just saw... Uh, Reggie Fowler go to jail for what four years or six years for essentially being a, a cash mule 
as uh, for crypto capital, which was handling all of the tether transactions back in 2017. And at that point, there was, I believe, $800 million worth of tethers funds that were locked inside of a, a Polish bank and have yet to be recovered. Uh, and during that time, tether was probably only 60% capitalized. Uh, so, you know, Tether definitely hit some things during that period and they paid a price. They paid a fine, $25 million to the DOJ uh, for the uh, for that. And so I think that's where a lot of the questions around Tether comes where, you know, we don't have insight into these companies. And that's where a lot of this reflexivity comes. It's almost if the transparency provides uh, too much reflexivity. If you look at USDC, where people can can calculate like the specifics of how much uh, they should actually value their potentially depegging stable coins at. Yeah, it, it's to me, it's always kind of funny how in crypto you'll see you'll see large institutions kind of follow the masses. Like I, I won't name them, but they're literally like very big, well known, and like highly regarded VCs that sold the bottom of USDC and then bought back the top. Um, and, and it's quite evident that a lot of these institutions did this without even like considering, okay, if something is trading at 90 cents, that's implying a 10% probability that it goes to zero, right? <laughs> or a 20% probability that it goes to 50 cents. And but, no, I don't, I look, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, contend with your math there. Um, sure. I think the, I think the, the questions around USDC were like, okay, they have, they have a $3 billion hole and they have. $30 billion in assets. Okay. Sure. So like, you know, that's fine. Okay. But now let's just assume that there's $20 billion of redemptions, right? Yeah. As there would be as people run for the exits. And now you're sitting on a $10 billion or like $10 billion in supply with $3 billion hole. Now you should value it at 70 cents Absolutely. because there's, there's only that much value there. <clears throat> so that all these questions about like, okay, USDC depeg to what it was like 86 cents or something. Uh, the, all of that was just based on the math of like, how, how much do we expect to be withdrawn? And what's the, what's going to be the gap then at that point after all of these redemptions are processed? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But then the, the thing, the, the issue with that is that nobody priced in a recovery rate, right? A lot of people didn't think about the fact that, okay, sure. Let's say there's a bank run. They have this $3 billion hole. And imagine like a hypothetical scenario where everyone withdrew everything from CERN. Everything is gone except for that $3 billion hole. The, the market, the way it was pricing USDC at the time would have priced it at $0 at that point, right? With zero recovery rate. And even for even bankrupt companies get priced with a 40% recovery rate in CDS in TradFi, right? Mm. And... If you looked at USDC and priced it as a credit default swap, it was trading 40, it was missing the entire recovery rate, right? And, and of course, like, yeah, sure. Pricing any derivative, you have assumptions, and then that's why you have trade points because people have differing opinions, right? But to, to, to me, at least, like that, that was just a very funny thing where in crypto, everyone's so used to an environment where if something's gone, it's gone, right? You get, smart contract gets hacked it's gone there's no recovery rate you'll be very very it's very rare that someone will like you know return funds or something like that i mean the oiler thing is a one-off right or or if something's miss um like if something's built improperly and it goes to zero and some you know people are in crypto price things as if they'll never recover 
it was kind of one of those funny things where if you had experience doing anything in traditional finance and kind of could kind of look beyond the mist, you'd see that, you know what, like it, it's just a liquidity problem. Like, you know, you, you can't withdraw us dollars on the weekend and there's poor liquidity right now. And if you're willing to take the other side of that bet, it could work out well for you. And we got like, we, we were seeing all kinds of activity, uh, at least on our platform. Right. Um, it was actually funny, like a few days before the USDC DPEG, we had guys complaining to us that, hey, I think the market's overpricing uh, DPEG for USDC. They were saying like, yeah, what, you know, 1% chance is, you know, way, way too high. It should be like 0.001. You guys should increase the strike prices on your platform. Anyway, that was kind of funny how that, how that happened. But yeah. Yeah, so most of the arguments, this is actually one of the bigger arguments that I've seen academics use to attack crypto-based stablecoins is that the because because they are price sensitive, right? Because these stablecoins can depeg away from the dollar, uh, it shows that they're bad money. Because if you look at other types of money, say like you know money that's in your bank, it's price insensitive. Uh, unless the bank is collapsing, uh, well, even if the, even if the bank is collapsing, you're going to have FDIC insurance on some of your deposits, uh, and you also could have insurance provided uh, for other deposits that you have there. So, if you're just like a normal retail person who has less than two hundred fifty thousand, you should be price insensitive about your money. Uh, it's it's only when you get into these larger amounts that you find some price sensitivity. And this price sensitivity, especially in the crypto markets, is specifically what they argue makes it a poor type of money. Yeah. And, and so, so my counterpoint to that is that you shouldn't view stable coins as a substitute or, or sorry. Okay. It is a substitute for us dollar, but you shouldn't view it as like one for one with a us dollar ever. It is not a us dollar. It is pegged to a us dollar. There are global currencies that are pegged to other global currencies that are issued by governments that don't trade at one-to-one -one pegs all the time because of supply and demand, right? Um, I mean, like, one one example that I love is, like, the, the Chinese yuan, you've got an onshore and offshore currency. It's the same currency, but one of them is allowed to trade offshore. And not every company can redeem one for the other, right? And, and then you've got other countries that, that have their own U.S. dollar pegs like, to their own currencies, like you don't, I don't view, I, sh I don't think anyone should view U.S. like stable coins as U.S. dollars because one day someone's going to solve trading U.S. dollars, actual U.S. dollars on chain using crypto rails. And that's going to be a massive achievement for the entire industry. And it's going to be a huge innovation. And I think I personally believe that that's when crypto will become really mainstream because we will actually just, you know, we'll end up achieving part of what sort of Bitcoin was set out to achieve, right? Um, but at the moment, you know, like when, when academics say, sure, you know, you shouldn't view stable coins as like a proper currency. I mean, yeah, if you, th that's only true if you view it as a U.S. dollar, but it isn't. I don't think anyone should, right? It's a proxy for a U.S. dollar and, uh, and any proxy will never be perfect. And as long as you can kind of. Well, you only have to look at like Argentina or somewhere, which is having sure. actual monetary problems, right? Yeah. Uh, where they have. 15 different exchange rates based on how you're using Absolutely. money. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're lucky to live in a, uh, a, a strong financial system where 
Like there is only one dollar rate. Like one dollar is one dollar wherever you use it. Totally. Have you guys have you guys heard of RuneScape? Yeah. Five years ago, people in Venezuela were using RuneScape Gold to like actually buy things <laughs> because it was holding it was holding value because people were trading it for U.S. dollars. It had an exchange rate. It was holding value better than their own currency. And a lot of people were making more money playing RuneScape than getting a job in Venezuela. Wow. That's kind of, a, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's how a lot of stuff happens in Southeast Asia. Like, let me tell you, World of Warcraft has subsidized a lot of like families that are in like slave like conditions, farming gold and like that kind of stuff. I mean, the oh, Axie boom, the Axie boom last year, right? Or two, two years ago now. True. Yeah. Let's see how the Philippines is doing a year later after everything is at zero. <laughs> yeah uh yeah so i mean like w w like what's i guess you said it already for these stable coins i mean we're going to continue to see dpegs as time goes on right and you know what what are people supposed to do about it right like uh is it just protecting themselves on chain and and hedging or uh, should we be demanding something from our regulatory institutions Okay, well, that's a very philosophical question, right? Um, there, there are definitely those that'll say they want more regulation from some centralized entity. In my opinion, that's no longer decentralization. And I think that's the opinion of many people in the space. Um, I, I wouldn't say that like a lot of people in the space are anti-structure or anti-government or anything like that. But the whole ethos of DeFi is that it's it's a tool built by the people and it's to be used by the people and the people should decide how it works. And in general, why should one people's government be allowed to choose how it works for all the people, right? And, and there, there's a lot, you can kind of go down this rabbit hole. Um, and then like to your question of what should people do about the fact that stable coins will continue to depeg. I mean, obviously I'm not gonna tell people what to do. I don't want, <laughs> but, um, if you if you're it's a risk right that you, you need to accept when you enter the space is that all the benefits that come from decentralization come with a risk and then that and that's what's paying for your benefits in the end of the day right um you get to do all these things with like no borders uh anyone can can participate etc cetera, etc cetera, but then you live with that risk and, and that's the trade-off now there are platforms emerging um, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, where you can go and actually hedge yourself on a regular basis. And, and some of these platforms are coming out with really cool products that'll be announced this weekend, for instance. Uh, but what, what, what platform are you mean? talking about? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Should we just tell these guys that uh, yeah, sure. is coming Please. out this week or the wildfire announcement is coming out? Yeah, well, what, what, like, what, what can people actually do at Y2K Finance to, to hedge? Uh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll spill the beans here a little bit. So like on, on Y2K at the moment, people can actually, like I, I mentioned to you guys before, like so this is kind of like a gamified experience, Earthquake. It's, it's really cool because it's really simple. Anyone can participate. And a lot of our participants right now, they'll go in and they'll see things like, okay, uh, okay, to give people a bit of context, it's two vaults. You deposit in one of them. If you think there's a DPEG, you deposit in the other one if there's no DPEG. There's an oracle that decides whether or not there's a DPEG based on a strike price. And there's a deposit period where anyone can deposit in either vault. Once the deposit period closes, you're locked in. And if there's a DPEG over the next week or month or whatever the epoch is, 
you either win or you lose everything. So for a lot of people right now, you know, as they're depositing, your payout isn't guaranteed until the end of the deposit period because at any point some whale could come in and deposit a lot of like ETH. ETH is like whatever we denominate everything in for now. People can deposit a lot of ETH in either side uh, and change your payout. And, and that can either be like beneficial to you or not. But generally speaking, uh, it's a really fun way that we saw to solve a liquidity problem where if we just built a... Um, like a bonding curve, very similar to some sort of, uh, there's a few platforms. I'm not going to shout them out though. But if we build some kind of bonding curve to, to price these things where, you know, people can enter and exit positions, we'd have all kinds of issues with like sandwich attacks and even just supply side liquidity. People would come in and be like, ah, I don't want to pay bid off or take either side of this. But right now people can come in and it's kind of funny the, the way people's mentality is. A lot, a lot of folks prefer to just, deposit in a vault and not really be completely sure of what the payout's going to be. And especially now we've kind of added ways to compensate you for being earlier. And like we call it the information tax. There's like a whole, there's a whole thing about like, what's the expected value of depositing early versus later, not knowing the payout, blah, blah, blah. We'll get into all that. Anyways, that's earthquake in a nutshell. Uh, but for the average person, we're actually, you know, or I shouldn't say the average person, but for the for the average trader or the average institution, a lot of folks really, um, really, really care about having a guaranteed payout. They want to say, okay, I'm going to buy this protection for 95 cents over the next six months. Meaning that, okay, I pay five cents if there's no DPEG and I'm going to earn 95 divided by five, right? Um, if there is a DPEG. So you get like 19x return if there's a DPEG. And that's what we're building out right now on an order book with a very cool feature, which will be explained in the white paper when it is released, that actually allows for liquidations, leverage with no liquidations, which is a, and, and we have like a fun way of doing that. It's actually really simple once you look at it. But you can get like 20x leverage or 50x leverage on exposure to stable coins without the need for on-chain liquidations, which actually helps a lot with the decentralization problem. Because as you know, if you want to liquidate anybody on-chain, you need keepers. And you can kind of like make a question of how decentralized is that in the end. So anyway, that's, uh, yeah, there's a lot in the pipeline. Oh, that's and, pretty awesome. Yeah, thanks for letting me plug that. Yeah, so uh, for anyone listening, you can find uh, Y2K's info down in the show notes, I believe, where they will be there. Uh, we're also blasting it out on Twitter. Uh, and so, yeah, so let's hop on to some other news that happened. Uh, the big story of yesterday uh, was that BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager with uh, $10, million, $10 trillion in AUM, filed for Bitcoin ETF. Um, there was some back and forth about whether it actually was an ETF, but the legal minds of crypto Twitter assured me that this is a trust setup and it would be similar to other ETFs like the GLD or SLV or some other commodity-related ETFs. Aren't they using Coinbase Rails for that? Yes, they are using Coinbase. What a joke. What yeah. A joke. So it's interesting, actually, because I wouldn't think BlackRock to file a trust application without having a good probability of them thinking that it's going to pass. They're kind Great. of on one side, it seems, no? What do you say, Alex? Great. Like, I mean, isn't this what we well, want? 
like I think that uh, the perception of uh, some of us is that uh, why, for example, didn't uh, grayscale uh, get to do it? Seems like one uh, side is getting uh, well. Maybe grayscale uh, turned out to be a some shady outfit, didn't it? <laughs> and Blackhawk so, is, uh, in your opinion, for sure uh, not. So uh, Patrick May Henry. Uh, the head of the Financial Services Committee actually came out on Twitter yesterday and said, your move, Gary Gensler, the SEC must not pick winners and losers based on in inconsistent factors. I'll be watching this closely. So it's important to note that ARK also has an ETF uh, no. for Bitcoin that's ahead of BlackRock. So it'll be interesting I... to see how the next few months go. Isn't there kind of like a logical like um, problem with Mr. McHenry's argument, which is that if they want consistency, that means it's <laughs> going to get rejected? Yeah. Well, I think I think the question is, is that like there's been a litany of other applications that have gone through and failed for years now. And this right, one, so this one is a little bit different in that it uh, it's a trust and it's not uh, an explicit like ETF. No, and no, all, all ETFs are trusts. Like that's all, just, all ETFs are trusts. Yeah. Yes, uh, but it's similar to GBTC with some notable differences, and it also has redemption added to it. Uh, I guess I'm kind of losing track of the plot because I'm old enough to remember when BlackRock was like a villain, but everyone's like <laughs> super bullish on this news. Well, that's the thing about Bitcoiners, right? They're they'll cheer for other projects in the crypto space to be shut down by the SEC as long as it's good for Bitcoin. And uh, if you have the largest asset manager in the world come in and propose an ETF, then it's also good yeah. for Bitcoin as well. And too. what a surprise if the biggest asset manager will actually get to do it uh, and the others won't. I personally don't see it as a surprise and I don't see it as a 100% kosher, just my uh, perception from afar. I think it's totally legitimate for BlackRock to put in an application for a Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, for sure. like, but totally legitimate. Yeah. And like, look, I, whatever, let's like not have this like, we're Apparently talking about we the process. Well, what's not to have here? We can discuss the process, whether we think uh, it's uh, going well, uh, like in a legitimate way or not. W what's wrong about it? Because we don't know anything about this. So like, and, and it's, we they found an application. Man, because I'm trying to get to my next point, which is like, I don't think that there's a lot of meat on this story. But what I do think is interesting is what, how this relates to what the Arthur Hayes article from yesterday talked about which is like the way that um, the way that, you know, look, honestly, like Arthur Hayes articles are starting to read to me like a lot like copium and copium. But like if you take his like view forward, like he's really talking in the context of China, but it's the exact same thing in the U.S. Like the way that governments will um, like be transitioning to crypto assets, but still keeping their uh, basically like populations like financial capital locked into that into that country is by offering these products through um but sorry offering exposure to things like bitcoins through regulated products so the idea is that like everyone can participate in bitcoin and get all the upside but like you're not actually getting like you're still within the um what arthur hayes calls like the inside money of that system and so um i don't know like if you're anti-government and paranoid like you might see that as a scary thing but like as someone who believes that like government is inherently a good thing and believes that like in order to build like crypto that matters in the world we need to integrate with the real world like i like it when big companies that like are institutions of the way the world are built are like buying into 
the products that we're creating for them. Like this seems like a good thing. No, I, I, I agree with the, the last statement for sure. I'm just saying that uh, it doesn't always seem as if the process is fair to all participants. But, but that, it's that's not I think fair. My I totally agree. It's not fair. And anyone who thinks that, that like it ever was fair or that it like, that's just not how the world works. Well, speaking of fair and not fair, after the whole Prometheus thing that we talked about this week, just kind of like blew up on crypto Twitter, uh, Jake Travinsky announced that the Blockchain Association has sent in a FOIA request to the SEC seeking documents related to its dealings with Prometheum. Uh, it just seems all a little shady, right? Especially after what we discussed yesterday. And this, the, there, there has to be something going on on between the agencies or some of the uh, maybe the White House and what's happening at Prometheus. So hopefully we find out more information to be something going on. Well, I mean, that it to me, they're, you know, like potentially like it sounds to me like a lot of D.C. people like get together and drink at the same bars and probably talk some about this topic. That is a conspiracy, Garrett. <laughs> well, that's what no, a conspiracy well, is. You conspire with people. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. Then I guess I have no problems with conspiracies because, like, we're humans and we work with other humans. <laughs> yeah, but it's not. I mean, I mean, it's not supposed to work like that, though. In a, in a, you know, open I do think DC like is in its own like little bubble of groupthink, but uh, you know. But so I are mean, we. Like, yeah. So are we in crypto? <laughs> so is the beer industry in beer? So it like that's just how people work. I, I mean, I just think DC usually tends to be behind the rest of the country because of it, but eventually, like, stuff filters in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a like a, a fair um, characterization. I don't know. I'm waiting for Elizabeth Warren to call out BlackRock for the uh, environmental impacts of this uh, ETF, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure she will, Garrett. I'm not sure she will. Are you sure? Well, BlackRock, BlackRock oh, has yeah. a good ESG score, so maybe it'll pass. I support ESG. <laughs> no, no sarcasm, no joke. I support environmental, right. I support social, and I support good governance. Yeah, but yeah, it, I, I support these concepts in general, but I don't support uh, the policy of ESG as I see it, uh, like uh, ro ruled out, uh, rolled out uh, worldwide. I think there are uh, other uh, motivations to it which are not uh, always uh, in the benefit of us as a public. But I don't think it's the topic we want to uh, really uh, dig into uh, right now. Yeah, but not as a public, but shareholders. So, um, and. Uh, like friend of DeFi or foe of DeFi, Avram Eisenberg, we reported yesterday, potentially had been released in a later announcement. Garrett, what actually happened here? Yeah, so uh, Leviathan News um, mistakenly posted, and we have to own up to it. Uh, it wasn't like the headline was not inaccurate, but it was misleading, uh, where we had seen some people had looked and basically said, hey, it looks like the prison that he had been incarcerated in is he's no longer there. Uh, so they took this to mean that he's free on the streets and he's going to like manipulate some markets and maybe he's behind all the curve FUD or whatever. Um, it looks like what actually happened, someone did like basic research and just said, no, no, like he's actually just been transferred to a different facility and he's got a, a trial coming up in December. Yeah. And in addition to that, Doquan has also been extended or his prison sentence or pre-trial pre -trial detention has also been extended six months while he awaits potential extradition. And join us next week when we discuss Elizabeth Holmes' uh, time in jail. We also <laughs> need to talk about the Unibobber who died in jail. We need to talk about Jailcast. Jailcast. 
can we get in if we can go do some interviews in jail? You want to get into jail? There's <laughs> some easy ways to do that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, just be in crypto. You'll be there in a second. Yes, exactly. Uh, and yeah, there's some other things. Abra was, so crypto lender Abra was supposedly said to be insolvent by state regulators, made transfers to Binance. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I mean, look, like this is the exact kind of reason why, like, most people in this country think crypto is for scammers and like a disgusting thing is because like, it, I mean, that story's so bad. Like this lending and borrowing firm has been insolvent for months, months, for yes. months. And they didn't even admit it. It took the fucking Texas attorney general to file a lawsuit for us to even know something was up. <laughs> like, Do you think this, if it's actually true, this is like go to jail for a long time sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think our industry needs like a, to reckon with the fact that this shit is normal. I, I mean, it happens in regular business as well, too, right? And those people go to jail. Hopefully, it's not uh, minimum security, you know, hotel-like jail, but actual federal prison, not so great jail. Some of them don't even go to jail. What was that? Some of them don't even go to jail, and it happens in TradFi very often. That's true. Very Actually, rarely. I would say most of them don't go to jail. The only time it happens is when it's really all over the public and they have no other choice but to make an example of something. I don't know. I take issue with that. I think if this Aubrey situation happened in TradFi, they'd be in jail. But isn't it a bit easier uh, in TradFi to like uh, hide stuff and uh, close <clears throat> stuff behind the scene? I think, no. I, think, I think the difference. I think the difference is just there's a higher standard of guilt when it comes to criminal cases versus civil cases. So, you know, the SEC can, you know, more easily prove that you committed securities fraud and get you to, you know, divest of all your uh, profits that you had, plus uh, prevent you from taking a officer position for X number of years or indefinitely if they want. Uh, on the DOJ side to produce, to prove criminal fraud, I'm, I'm, I'm we're, none of us are lawyers here, but, uh, I would assume that there is some higher bar of of culpability that has to be met. Like beyond a shadow of a doubt, obviously for guilt in that case. Like you're colluding, maybe in this case, right? Because he colluded to hide this from his uh, investors. I mean, you just can't lie to investors. Like if, if someone's like, hey, how's my money doing? And you're like, good, we went up 2%, but really I lost all of your money. Like you go to jail <laughs> for that. Like I don't know. Uh, that is true. Um, and yeah, so I think that's, I think that's it. You know, uh, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about today? Just want to point out that the actual lawyer in the comments is weighing in that Avi did not commit a crime and should be free in his opinion. This is Alex who joined us earlier this week <laughs> and also wants to free Elizabeth Holmes while we're at it. So careful. Cause there's gonna be a lot of people running in the streets in a uh, Alex Golubitsky administration. Yes. Wait, actually, does he really talking. think Elizabeth Holmes should be free? Get him on here. We need to talk about that. <laughs> no, I think we should get him on here uh, for uh, because he thinks Avi should be free. That's uh, even more interesting to me. But uh, whenever, Alex, uh, there's always a next week. I mean, I mean I... you can join us in prison cast. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Y2K, thank you for coming on. Really enjoyed the talk. Uh, where can people find you, actually? I'll let Kirk take that one. Thanks, guys. See here. I don't. I don't think he's. Uh, Mike is working at the moment. 
Oh, true, true. Uh, yeah, you can find us at y2k.finance. <laughs> uh, y2k.finance and at y2kfinance on Twitter. Wonderful. Well, cool. Uh, me and the other squids, thank you for coming on. Uh, we will be back tomorrow with another show. So until the tide returns, is that it? Thank you so much, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah are, are we, like, I, we need some better tagline, like until the tide returns, but then like, Survive. Survive. Until the next tide. Until the next tide. All right. See you guys later. Later. Goodbye, guys. Have a great weekend.